You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. My name is Keevan Carley. I am the youth director here, and I am honored and glad that I get to teach God's word this morning. Uh, Our lead pastor, Brent Gerard, is up in Virginia. He is in the DMV. If you are from the DMV, then you're like, oh, snap, this brother might be from the DMV. Nobody's from the DMV. All right, well, DMV, District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia. That's, that's kind of slang, whatever. Uh, he is up in Virginia at our sister church uh, this morning. He is preaching there. And as I'm thinking about how he's there and I'm here, I'm just truly encouraged by what God is doing and by our privilege, the opportunity that he has blessed us with to be the church gathered. If you did not know, we had a group of 28 that went down to the Every Nation Campus Conference down in Jacksonville, Florida, just this weekend. Left Friday, came back last night. Yeah, y'all can clap. A lot of you guys are here this morning in the first service, which is kind of surprising. I thought y'all would have slept in, but maybe you're feeling what I'm feeling, which I would truly attribute to being the joy of the Lord being my strength, because we should be exhausted. We should be tired, and we are, to some degree, But the fact that we are giving our all in worship, I see some kid-focused shirts. That means that people will be serving this morning, that we didn't call out and say, hey, I'm too tired. But that instead, we are fueled by what God has been doing this weekend as the church gathered. And we're continuing it out through this service and the next. But then even later on this evening, we'll come back for prayer and communion so that we could have corporate worship and just embrace the fellowship of the body as the church that God has called us to be that we get together as brothers and sisters. It is our privilege. It is a blessing. And so I'm so excited and honored by that. And then even forward, that we even have another team. Actually, we have one of our worship team members who's down in Jacksonville who is helping lead worship for this conference. But then, because of our family of network of churches, that next week we'll have a team of other worshipers from our team who's going to Virginia to help lead the Every Nation Conference there. And so it's just beautiful when you really consider what God, what Scripture says God has made us to be, that we are members of one body. That means that there are some hands, there are some foots, there are some noses, there are some eyes, but that we are all called to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us for His glory. And so when we come and gather together, we get to be a part of that, singing praises, serving, loving one another, forgiving one another, all for the name of Jesus being united by something greater than any sports team or any politician or political party or anything else that could unite us together, as we were encouraged by Andrew Barton this morning in our volunteer rally, anything else that could gather us together and say, hey, yeah, I'm with you. It's all just underneath the feet of Jesus. That is beautiful, and that should encourage you because it does mean as a follower of Christ. And so I'm excited this morning. We're going to get right on into this message, continuing this sermon series, Walk 
uh, or I'm sorry, sit, walk, stand as we journey through Ephesians. But before we get started, I wanted to ask a question that I feel like I know the answer to. But do we have any fans of HGTV here this morning? By show of hands, let's, let's see. I actually thought there would be more. Maybe, maybe you're like, I don't care about HGTV, I just care about Fixer Upper. Okay, some of y'all. All right. So I used to be a fan, kind of still am, I just don't really have time to watch TV anymore. But uh, Fixer Upper was that show. And I don't know if it still has the craze and the cult following that it used to, but Fixer Upper was the show on HGTV that really, uh, all the shows, or most of them at least, encompass some form of remodeling or, or renovation to a home, a property, where it takes it from nothing into something. And, and every show, uh, or any, any of these renovation shows will encompass the, the before and after pictures that will really allow you to grasp the weight of what happened, what took place, all the work that was put into these properties. And so these shows, you, you, can, you can look at the after picture and say, man, that's a beautiful house. I really admire that. The crown molding, the shiplap, <laughs> the German schmear. My wife taught me that one. She was like, we got to have that in our house. And now it's on our faux brick panel, all the stuff. And so you can look at all of that and say, man, that's beautiful. That is amazing. I love it. But if you don't know what it looked like before, if you don't know what it took to get to the end result, you can't fully appreciate it. You can to some degree, but you can't really stand in awe. And so to give those of us who don't like Fixer Upper or HGTV uh, an understanding of what I'm talking about, I've got a picture. This first picture is a shotgun home. It's from season three of Fixer Upper. And raise your hand if you live there. Raise your hand if you'd stay there, if you were paid. Exactly, nobody. You're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not staying there if you pay me, let alone buying that property. But Chip and Joanna Gaines work their magic, as they always do, and they turn that into this. Whoa, uh uh-huh. Now this first picture, the before picture, this house was purchased for $28,000. This after picture, the value of the house increased to $139,000. But that's not all. That's not all. A year later, in 2017, this house was listed on the market for $950,000. Now, I didn't finish reading the story because that just dropped my jaw and I was like, whatever, I I can't do that. But I don't know if it's sold or not or if they're like, nah, we're just going to play the long game and Airbnb this bad boy because now it's got the chip and go Joe and again magic where now it's got a stamp of approval where everyone wants to stay there. But the point of it all is that, yeah, when you see the before, you can truly appreciate the after because you see what it took to get there. You see the elements that remained, but you also see the new additions. So even though the beautiful after picture is is awesome in and of itself, it's further revealed, the beauty of it is further revealed when we look at the before picture, but also we start to take notice of not just the, the house, but we can start to appreciate the work of the designers, of the contractors, the architects. And we recognize that we should give credit to where it is due. So hopefully if you're following along, you'll see that I'm not just talking about houses anymore. I'm talking about us remembering correctly who we were, our before picture, before Christ. What did we look like? Were we dilapidated? 
They didn't want, want to be around us. Were we stuck up in our ways and our sins and, and, and just set apart, not in the holy sense, but in the sense that we should have been avoided by everyone, but especially God. So as we look in this beautiful book of Ephesians this morning, we're going to see exactly what Paul is writing in regards to before and after pictures, the, comp the comparison of who we used to be in light of who we are now. And our main text this morning will be chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But before we get into that, let's look at verses 20 through 23 of chapter 1. So Pastor Brent actually taught on these verses last week, but it really sets the scene for what we're going to focus on. So in verses 20 through 23, it reads, He, that's Jesus, or God the Father, He exercised this power in Christ by raising Christ from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He subjected everything under His feet, and appointed him, Jesus, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. In these four verses, Paul is writing, describing Jesus' position as the head honcho. He's above all. He is chief. He is supreme. He is sovereign over all. Paul is emphasizing the gospel message that God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't and to die the death that we deserved. And therefore, as God resurrected Jesus from the grave, he then, Jesus then ascended into heaven and God seated him at the right hand of his throne. And therefore, Jesus is rightfully positioned as above every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, every title given. And not just in that time, in these olden days, but for all ages to come. Paul is saying Jesus is supreme. The picture that he's painting is that there is none over Christ, although we might make our little G-gods and have our idols that we tend to put over him. But truly, there is none who, who reign as sovereign over Jesus. He is head over everything. He is Lord, whether or not his creation acknowledges him as such. And so for the church, for us as Christians, we therefore should fix our eyes on him. And it's crucial that we understand his positioning as the one that God the Father seated at his right hand because it informs everything that we do, everything that we read in the rest of these scriptures. It has to be through the lens of Jesus as the one with authority who gives the commands, the one with the power who saves and breaks the chains of our sins. It informs everything that we do. Through this text that we'll be reading, we're going to see that God himself is the master designer who takes the ugliness that we bring to him in our sin and our rebellion and trespasses, and he makes something beautiful, but it's not through a remodel. It's not through a home renovation or a makeover. It's through something that's even greater. So with that in mind, we'll pick up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but we're going to break it down and walk through it, starting with verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Out the gate, strong language. Strong language. You were dead. Not, man, you were messed up. 
you were jacked up, you had your issues, all of the little colloquial terms that, that we use to try to lessen the blow about our sin. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So Paul's strong language, as he's talking to the Christians in Ephesus, he's, he's emphasizing, hey, both Jew and Gentile, y'all all came out of the same starting block. You were sinners. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. See, we've started by looking at Jesus and recognizing that he's sovereign over all because of his perfect life he lived and the death that he died, although we deserved it, he took it in our place. He took the punishment for our sins. But Jesus, he's being set apart because he's holier than us. He is the true, holy, and righteous one. So there's a, a stark distinction saying this is where Jesus is and this is where you were. There was a gap, there was a chasm where you could not earn or work your way to the love of God. You couldn't. You could try. And you thought that you were even making some headway, but you were not. You were dead in your sins. Jesus' position as sovereign Lord over all means that now we look to him for our salvation. And that's what Paul is continuing to elaborate on. But he doesn't romanticize the church the way that we do in our mind, the way we romanticize ourselves in our mind. You know how in real life, you have those house projects that you, you know you need to address. That's why we have spring cleaning, right? It's coming up. Man, I know I need to clean those baseboards. I need to clear those gutters. Man, I, I, I really need to, to I, I don't know what else you need to do, but you know. And you're like, man, I need to schedule the time for it. I need to devote my time and attention to get this done so that I can take care of this house. I need to steam clean that sofa. I just did that, and, and I didn't like it. It was not fun, but it actually revealed that it was long overdue because I saw, man, this was a lot of dirt. Is that uh, vacuum sucks up the water, and the clear water that was sprayed onto the couch is now coming up as brown and black? That's an issue. But it's one of those issues that we leave off and say, I'll do it. It needs to be done. I'll do it. But you eventually get used to your house being that way. You forget. You still lounge on that couch. You walk by those same baseboards every day. You think about it and you're like, hmm, eventually. And it's the same way with our sin. Maybe we can go to someone else's house and say, man, bro, your, your baseboards are black, but it looks like they should be white underneath. We can point that stuff out when somebody else is around or when we're at that house, just like we can point out someone else's sin much easier than we can ourselves. We can say, man, your pride is really an issue, dude. Man, you, you don't see how lust is just captivating your life? But with our spring cleaning, we put it off and say, I'll get to it later. I know I need something like a renovation. I need some work done, but I'm quite all right in my mind. Even if we pray, God, show me my own sin. Sometimes we blindfold ourselves or close our eyes so that we can ignore it. 
This is connecting the dots between this last sermon series, Abide. If we're not abiding in the Word of God, and we pray that prayer, God, show me my sin. If I'm not in the Word that is going to reveal the holiness of God that will convict me through the Spirit, then I'm praying an empty prayer. My heart's not truly saying, God, I, I, I want to be like Jesus. I'm saying it with my words, but I'm not living it out by submitting myself to this word under the authority of Jesus as the living word and saying, God, I want your written word to convict me. Paul's writing. He's saying, listen, your depravity is demonstrated in the way that you live. As those dead in your trespasses and sins, you're, you're the walking dead. You can maneuver through life and deceive yourself into thinking that you're just fine, but you had no power to free yourself from your sin. If you think about the before picture of your life, if you're uh, one who proclaims Jesus as Lord and Savior of, of your life, what would be on that screen? What did your life look like? Was it lust? Was it lying? Was it stealing? Was it anger, which Jesus sets the bar even higher and saying, hey, when you're angry because of your sinful nature, you're actually committing murder in your heart, even if it's not with your actions. Same with lust. Even though you might not be committing adultery physically in your mind and in your heart, you are. What's on that screen for your before picture? There are some sins that we can shake loose from or maybe that we never actually struggled with, like some that I've already mentioned. Maybe you're like, yeah, that wasn't me. I've never had that issue. But you are no less of a sinner. You've got your own issues as I have mine, your own shackles on your ankles that freed you from walking in the obedience that God has called us to because we were stuck in our ways and in our sin. All of this reveals an old condition that Paul is addressing. We were dead to God. Paul is saying you were dead. You might have been alive physically on this earth, but you were spiritually dead. And the ways that you were walking were all in accordance to what the world would attribute to as normal. You were actually following the ways of Satan. Uh, A commentary puts it this way. There's a strong spiritual correlation between disobedience to God and slavery and bondage to Satan. Satan's aim is to make a sinful life seem so natural that when our behavior is challenged, people will simply reply, but that's how the world works. When you're in that job and you're, you're lying or, and falsifying your documents or falsifying your resume to get the job, but then you justify it by saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I got to do what I got to do. Or when you tell those little white lies, trying to make yourself seem better, seem more holy, more righteous, seem more intelligent, whatever it is, you're telling those small lies, trying to make yourself look good because you got to fake it till you make it. When you have that sexual ethic that says, man, it's all right. What I do with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, it's okay. Everyone's doing it. It's normal. What I see and watch on my screens, it's normal. Or or, or you've got to test drive the car before you commit to buying it. It's the ways of the world that we have normalized and justified. But what Paul is saying is that you're actually living in obedience to Satan. You're living as an enemy of God. 
In fact, God, or Paul actually wrote in Romans chapter 12 that God's way is different. In verse 2, he says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Other translations say, do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You might be used to doing things one way, as one who is dead to sin, but God's way is anew. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's set apart. See, in all of this, Paul is showing us that God desired relationship with us, but God knew that you can't have relationship with the dead. And so we required more than just a makeover or a renovation. We needed a resurrection. And that's what Paul brings as as we get to what's heard as the the biggest but in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, in verses 1 through 3, we see that we're dead. This strong language, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We couldn't do anything about it. But then in verses 4, Paul is saying, but God, that's where you were But praise God that he didn't leave you there. Praise God that he actually loved you enough to send Christ to die for you while you were yet a sinner. Do you recognize that God loved you before you could try to give him a reason to? We like to think that we've earned God's love. That if we give enough or if we help enough old ladies cross the street or or if we do enough good deeds that we could say, yeah, God, see, here's my resume. Check it out. You've got reason to love me now. I've I've placed myself a little higher in your eyes. But according to this, Paul is saying, God loved you enough to send Christ to die while you were still dead in your trespasses. This was written before any of us were alive. So before we were even born, God loved you in spite of the sin that you would commit. We didn't earn God's love. His love for us extends because of who he is. And we see that looking at John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus' prayer, he's saying, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. My focus, you family, know that I've been raving about this for the past few weeks. When I first read it, it slapped me in the face. What was God doing before the world's foundation? Before God created anything, what was he doing? Well, according to Jesus' prayer right here, he was a father loving his son. Jesus being the eternal living word, God was loving him in eternity past. And therefore, that informs, again, everything that we read and everything that we do because it tells us that God has always been a father, even before he created us. Even before he sent Jesus to save us and adopt us as his sons and daughters, God was already father. He was father to the son, Jesus Christ, and he loved him. That means that everything that God does and everything that God says in this word is as a father who loves. 
And for some of us, many of us, we may not have that great father figure that demonstrates this in a way that makes us say, yeah, I kind of get that. Maybe it's hard to wrap our minds around it, but it's the truth of the relationship that God has purchased for us to have, that he wants us to know him as the father who loves. So getting back to Ephesians, why was God rich in mercy? It's because he acted in his love for us. He addressed our death problem because he loved us. And the way that he did it was by making us alive with Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. We were dead in our trespasses and couldn't do anything about it, but instead of giving us a makeover and dressing us up as corpses, he resurrected us. He brought the dead to life just as he did for Jesus, which goes back to Pastor Brent's message last week, that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is now alive in us, and it resurrected us. And now Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us, so we have that power that empowers and equips us to move forward in obedience. Our resurrection is all thanks to God, the Father who loves We receive it by grace. We don't earn it. We're saved by grace. And so this resurrection is part of a new condition that we are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we're starting to see our before picture in light of what it was, but we're recognizing that now as a new creation, we're even more beautiful than any renovation that we might see on TV. We have a new aesthetic. We walk different. We talk different. We live different. But it's not because we've had some some, uh, behavioral modifications, some renovations saying, no, let's just give you a new roof, a new kitchen, a new stove, give you some hardware floor, some LVP, and we'll make you look a little better. No, you've been given a new heart. You've been given new desires where now you don't desire the things of old. Your sinful nature is still at war because it's still present within you. As long as you're in this body, your sinful nature will be at war with the Holy Spirit within you. That's what Paul said. He said, what I want to do, I don't do. But what I do not want to do, I do. It's a war inside. But we've been given a new heart where before we had no desire for righteousness. We only desired what would satisfy us, even at the expense of disobeying God. But now we have desires for righteousness, for the things of God. We're able to say yes to the things of God, say yes in obedience, surrender to God as the King and Lord of our lives. And it's all because of he who resurrected us. This section, it finishes up. Paul finishes these verses saying, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We get to experience immeasurable riches of grace as sons and daughters of God the Father. We get to experience this as the body of believers who are saved by grace, but we also get to be the light that radiates this goodness to the dark world. This sermon series, the the emphasis of what we're saying is that Christianity starts from the place of what Christ has done, not what we do. And because of that, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You don't walk, you don't even stand first, you sit. You sit as those being given the grace of God. 
those who received the love of God. Not because they earned it, not because they pleaded for it or asked or, or begged God, but because God offered it first. You receive. So with the last three verses, we'll finish up. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, verse 8, which many of us may have memorized, for it is by grace that you've been saved, not works. That's just a summary of everything that we've read. And it's needed. Paul is, because he's repeated it, he's saying like, you need to grasp this. The repetition is necessary. It, it, it speaks of the urgency of the matter. You need to grasp but that you are saved by grace through faith and not of your own works. You got to grasp that. You, you got to wrap your mind around it. And it's tough because we don't like receiving things. Even when our friends and family offer us uh, financial help, we're like, hey, hey, they offer it as a gift, but we say, no, I'll pay you back with interest. It's hard for us to receive gifts. It's hard for us to, to not receive it and think, man, they're just giving us a handout. They look at us like we're less than them, like we're, we're lower, and they're just trying to help us up to get where they are. It's hard for us to receive love. So to fathom a God saying, you're unworthy, but I love you anyway. To, to understand and wrap our minds a God who says, I love you and I chose you to be mine, not because you asked or pleaded, but because of me looking at you and saying, I love you. It's offensive to us. The gospel is offensive. There's nothing that you can do to earn the love of God. We can try to earn everything else, a paycheck, friendships, but we can't earn the love of God. It's offensive to us. But oh, what that does for our identity. To be wrapped up knowing that God chose us and we didn't choose him. To know that we didn't ask for a savior, but God sent him anyway. To know that we didn't love God enough to convince him to turn his ear to us, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It changes things. It humbles us, it surely does. But rightfully, underneath the one who has all authority. We shouldn't want to be equal with God. When we are fully aware of our before pictures, and we know the sin and the shame that we carried, but that he freed us from, it's humbling, but it invokes worship. It, would, it invokes love responding to love. It invokes us pouring out saying, God, I will sing praises to you with my words, but I will also sing praises with my obedience. I will live in submission to your word where I will read it. I will meditate on your laws. I will meditate on your ways because, God, you are sovereign and over me, but you're trustworthy. And if you loved me before, I could give you a reason to. And matter of fact, in spite of the reasons that I give you not to love me, then, God, I can trust you with my life, every area of it, my sexual ethics, my finances, 
the way I conduct business, the way I navigate relationships and conflict. I will run to this word to learn more of who you are and of your ways and your will for me because I delight in you. See, this new condition that God has given us is something spectacular. But when we read verse 10, it it brings it all into a bigger picture to understand that it's not just about us. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. We didn't save ourselves, he did. We're, we're, We're the clay, he's the potter. He's making us new. So we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God did all of this for his glory and our benefit, but for us to go and do good works that he's prepared for us that will be the light into this dark world that will ultimately point back up to him and say, he did it in me and he can do it in you too. He came to make dead people alive, not sick people better. So when we think about that, when we think about the fact that we weren't just renovated or made over, but we were resurrected, brought to new life, continuing on this illustration of of home renovations and makeovers, those TV shows, Fixer Upper, uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, Flip or Flop, all of those, one common thing that I would always see is that at the end of the episode, once the, the family settles into that new home, new home, they enjoy it. They show the, the B-roll footage of them smiling and saying, man, look at this. But oftentimes, they're not enjoying it by themselves. It's space for them to enjoy it. When they lay their head down in that new bedroom, it's like, yeah, this is mine. I get to enjoy it. Just like we get to enjoy our salvation. We get to worship in our own personal time with Jesus, but then also corporately. But then in the show, we see that they invite their friends and their family over. You see those people where you're like, I've never seen them earlier in the episode. You start to get that that image of maybe even a a, a housewarming party. The people are being brought over so that the homeowners can say, enjoy this with me. Look. See how beautiful this is. It's amazing. We delight in our home now in the same way that we should with our salvation as witnesses of Jesus. But what I love the most about all of this is that in some of those shows, you see some of the makeovers and renovations that you're like, that doesn't even look like the original property. That after picture is so distinct from the before that it looks like a whole new house. Like they just bulldozed in and started from scratch. Like this picture here. This picture, ranch style home, clearly old, worn and torn, maybe had some some weather damage. And you're looking at it like, yeah, um, wouldn't really want to stay there either. It's better than the shotgun house at least. But you see this before picture, but when you see the after picture compared to it, doesn't even look the same. It doesn't look like the same house. 
It looks starkly different, just like how our lives as followers of Jesus should look starkly different from how they did before. So that when we go out into this world and we get around our coworkers or our family members and our friends, that we can testify to who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. That we can say, yeah, man, I used to be jacked up. Not just jacked up, but I was dead in my sins. I couldn't shackle uh, or break the shackles that ensnared me. My lust, my lying, all of it. I, I was a completely different person. You remember how I used to cuss like a sailor? Well, you notice I haven't said anything like that in a while? It's because he's renewing me. You remember how I used to treat people? How I was always rude and taking advantage of people for my benefit, not looking out and considering others. Completely different person now. I look to serve. Why are you waking up early on a Sunday morning? You should sleep in. It's your day off. I enjoy serving at my church. I enjoy pouring out for God's glory and the good of others, which impacts the way that I witness. Because now... My recognition of God the Father as the Father who loved means that I delight in sharing of his love. I'm not viewing my, my sharing of the gospel and my Christian witness as something I have to do or else I'll be a bad Christian. I'm viewing it as something I get to do because I get to tell you about the God who resurrects. I get to tell you that he doesn't just do a makeover because you can try to do that yourself. You already do. But this God... He resurrects. He brings newness of life. So we go out and we delight. Let me tell you that story of Kevin Carley, a man who tried to present himself as someone who had it all together, who struggled internally, feeling unloved, unvalued, but would then therefore try to give double the reasons to earn it. That ultimately led to living a double life where in front of the people that actually cared about my spiritual life, I would try to be the good boy, but to the people who wanted to have fun, I would do all the things that they did because there would be some value. There would be some aspect of love. But I was looking for fruit in all of the wrong places that ultimately were, were just seeds at best, but that would die off. But the true fruit of the Spirit that I experienced as I tasted and saw that God is good, as I experienced salvation, as he transformed me, as he saved me from my sin, and now he's making me anew where he's sanctifying me, and I'm experiencing his grace and mercy on a daily basis. I'm different from who I used to be. But here's the thing, we cannot walk in good works until we know and rest in the identity that he seated us with Christ to have. We can try to hit the ground running and just go and try to tell and tell and tell and serve and serve and serve and do and do and do. But if we don't rest and be in God's presence, receiving what he's done for us as those seated saying, God, before I get up and go and do, I just want to meditate. I want to sit and think about your love for me, how I don't deserve it. I'm not going to run from my before picture. Again, we romanticize ourselves. We ignore it. We, we push past it. No, we remember correctly. Yes, who God is, 
But God is who he is for us as he saved us from who we were. So we sit and we, we meditate on scripture, on the truth of who God is and say, God, I don't want anything from you right now. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to think of your grace for me, your mercy, your loving kindness, your faithfulness. And that's how we start within our salvation. But that's how we continue to abide. That's how we move forward day after day in this process of sanctification, resting and sitting at the throne of the Father, remembering correctly who we were, but who he always has been and always will be. And from that place, we move forward, taking steps, walking, bringing the beautiful feet of those who share the gospel. We stand and proclaim truth, but from a place of resting in the Father, not trying to earn his love. So right now, I'd imagine that there are people in this room who can recognize that their before picture does look different from their after. And praise God for that. But maybe you recognize also that you have that tendency to forget what you used to look like. And that impacts the way that you share the gospel, the way that you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ, where you have developed a holier-than-thou mentality that looks at the sins of your neighbor and says, look at that. Jeez, man, they need Jesus in their life. As though you don't. As though you've gotten enough or you've gotten to a place where you no longer need to bow down to the one who has all the authority. And for that, I call you to repentance. I call us to repentance. We all have that tendency. That we will cry out to him and say, God, show me my sin. But God, help me to abide. That I will forever continue to grow in my understanding of your holiness, of your righteousness, of your love and your character. All the things that you are. God, help me to see all the things that I'm not. But help me to submit to you and sit trusting that you're making me anew. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not transform yourself. It's not our efforts. Our efforts don't save us, and our efforts don't sanctify us. It's the work of God through the Holy Spirit. But we do have a responsibility to show up, to play our part, and submit to that authority. But if you're someone who's saying, man, when I look at my life, I don't really have an after picture. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian because you came to church this morning. Maybe you read your Bible last night. Maybe you read your Bible this morning. And you've done all the things that you think would characterize you to be a Christian. But according to this, you're realizing that's, that's not who I am. I'm still dead in my sins and trespasses. I'm still stuck. Again, even for those who truly are saved, we still will struggle. But that's the beauty of it. Dead people can't fight. The arena for guys, the whole theme is real men fight, real saved men fight. If you are dead in your sin, you can't swing at nothing. But if you're dead in your sin still, you can still be saved. Because his love for you is still there. It's not too late that you will cry out to him and say, God, I'm a sinner. 
in need of a savior. And I want to trust Jesus to be he for me, to be that savior, to redeem me and give me new life because I'm tired of trying to remodel myself, repackage and represent to a new people and try to act like I've got it all together because I don't. You can cry out in that way right now. And repentance is saying, Lord, I need you. Not just as Savior, but I want to trust you as Lord because you have that authority. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.